We are coming to the time of the year when people look forward to what they call sometimes a change of scenery. Out of the house and away on holiday somewhere. This second chapter of John, it catapults us from the northern part of Palestine because our Savior was up there, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, performing his first miracle, brings us down through the central highlands to the capital city, Jerusalem. And here our Lord attends the first Passover feast during his earthly ministry. Brings us as well away from a clear display of his deity, He revealed that, showed his ability in the wedding feast, able to transform water into wine, all 180 gallons of it, up at that wedding. And he brings us now to a vital declaration of his death and resurrection, and he's standing quite poignantly by the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem. That Passover to which he had come was the celebration of a tremendous deliverance the Hebrew people had way back from the avenging angel in Egypt. You go back to Exodus chapter 12 and 13. You remember the story, the blood of the lamb sprinkled upon the doorposts and over the lintel of the houses in which they were. And that event had huge significance for our Lord Jesus Christ, because He, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Lamb of Atonement, He's mingling now down in Jerusalem with those sinners, some of which He would soon die to redeem, and He's coming as the ultimate Passover Lamb Himself. This is the first Passover of three that John mentions explicitly. And there is, if you check into John 5 and verse 1, a fourth Passover suggested there. And it's from these mentions of the Passover that we glean the fact our Lord's public ministry lasted approximately three plus years. One scholar in Jerusalem at the time of Christ claims that something of the order of two and a half million people would have crowded their way into what is really a small city. Jews from all over the land came. From the diaspora, those scattered in other countries, they came. And they attended those mandated feasts that they were obliged to attend. And you can imagine the whole city buzzing with people. They would witness there the blending of two vital themes. On the one hand, we have Jesus who has come, and He will be in time the perfect sacrifice. And we have the temple where the sacrifices had always been administered since the day a temple was built. And this whole apparatus of sacrifice in Jerusalem and the temple. It was controlled by the Levitical priests and by the high priest in particular. And if you were coming in there and you're bringing for the sacrifice, maybe an ox or a sheep or a lamb, and you've brought that, 
You'll only have been traveling a short distance if you were able to bring your own, and you're going to sacrifice there at the Passover, or maybe you're poor, and all you can bring is a pair of doves or pigeons. The basic demand that fell on you and everybody coming to the temple to sacrifice was that your sacrifice had to be perfect. You couldn't bring along an animal with one ear or half a leg or a tail missing some scrawny old thing that somebody looking at that, you would think you couldn't even salvage a pot of stew out of that animal. Quite simply, that offering would never get you past those Levitical priests. And so for the sake of convenience, people who were coming into Jerusalem to the temple from a distance, they could buy an animal on site rather than having to bring one from home. You could purchase a lamb, or an ox, or a sheep. Used to be at the gate of the temple, but it appears to be the case here. You could buy it within the court of the Gentiles, in the outer circumference of Herod's beautiful, extravagant temple precincts. And these sacrifices, because they were being sold on site, were subject to exorbitant price hikes. You know the way when you turn up at a sporting event and you go to the stall and you're buying a hot dog and you're thinking, I could buy 12 of these or 20 of these myself and have a really good feast. And here I am paying all of that for one. Or you go into a cafe to buy a cup of coffee and you know full well that Given the price of a bag of ground coffee, for example, I could make 35 cups of coffee here. It'll work out about 14 pence a cup. Did you know that just last week, in Mayfair in London, what was called the Ethiopian Cup of Excellence, Queen's Coffee, sold for one cup, 50 pounds. And you're thinking... We are being fleeced here. And that's what was happening, literally. People coming to the temple, buying an animal there. Where was all the money going that they were making here? Well, it was going into the coffers of the temple, especially into the coffers of the high priests. We're told that when Crassus invaded Jerusalem in 54 BC, that he took with him through that invasion something in the region of 10 million American dollars from that temple, and it was said that wasn't everything. And you might remember Crassus from an honorable mention that Martin Luther gave to him when he brought forth his 95 theses. And number 86 came in at, Why does not the Pope whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers. And that was the situation in the temple in Jerusalem back here. And then step forward the money changers because there was only one approved currency 
allowed within the temple. And you couldn't dare bring coins with the Caesar's head on those because they were viewed as unclean. And so the money changer were there to change monies from all over the world into the currency of the temple. And those money changers, as they do now, would have a cut in the transaction. Now step forward our Lord. In John 2, the verse 13 to 17, we read, verse 13, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cards, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence." Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And some skeptics and liberals crawl all over this and they say, Well, there's our Lord Jesus sinning here because he's losing his temper. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And it's not even possible that he did. Although it has to be pointed out here, our Lord did something quite extraordinary. Our Lord's actions were not so much trained against their practices as the place in which they were practicing these things, the court of the temple itself, the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, the only place where the Gentiles could go. And if they're coming up and they're hoping we're going to pray to the Lord, we're going to worship Him, they find themselves instead in the middle of an eastern bazaar. And if you've been in one of those, then you'll have some idea as to what this would have been like. Imagine how noisy all the animals crowded in there, bellowing and bleating, and the people bartering as they do in the Middle East. And they're in for a good deal, looking for a bargain. And it's all noise, and it's tumult. And you're trying to hold a prayer meeting to the Lord of heaven in such a riotous situation where prayers should be heard. There's only the sound of commerce, the Lord's house. According to Christ in Matthew 21, the verse 13, a corresponding passage in Mark 11, 17, in Luke 19, 46, it should have been notable, have this stamp upon it, it was a house of prayer, but it's been relegated to the level of a market, a den of thieves, he calls it. The place of supplication is now operating as a supermarket. The main lesson, therefore, is the primary function of God's house is to be a place of prayer. So notice, first of all, as a main point here, the essentiality of the house of prayer. The essentiality of the house of prayer. Spurgeon had great confidence in the value and validity of the prayer meeting. And what he did was he said he looked at his congregation, and that had started off very, very small indeed, and then had swollen to about 6,000 persons in regular attendance. And Spurgeon said, the prayer meeting is an institution which ought to be very precious to us and to be cherished very much by us as a church. For it is to it that we owe everything. 
When our comparatively little little chapel was all but empty, was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full? And when the church increased and the place was scarce large enough, Spurgeon says it was the prayer meeting that did it. In evangelical churches, it has been common to hold meetings for the children of God that they might engage in united prayer. We have ours on a Wednesday night, as you know, prayer meetings other times of the week as well. Although that practice, it has to be noted, sadly, is in rapid, if not terminal, decline. Back in the 1930s, A.W. Tozer wrote that worship, including prayer, is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. Now, if that's what he was thinking almost 100 years ago, how much more true is that today? And you will know, as I do, that an increasing number of churches have suspended and abandoned their prayer meetings. Oh, they'll have business meetings, and they'll have other meetings and events, but the prayer meeting, it's not on the notice board. It's not in the weekly announcements. Listen to this tongue-in-cheek allegory that points up the state of many a church's prayer meeting today. You'll have heard it many times. I'm sure it's in the form of an obituary. Mrs. Prayer Meeting died recently at the first neglected church of Worldly Avenue. Born many years ago in the midst of great revivals, she was a strong, healthy child, fed largely on testimony and spiritual holiness, soon growing into worldwide prominence. She was one of the most influential members of the famous church family, but... For the past several years, Sister Prayer Meeting has been failing in health, gradually wasting away, until rendered helpless by stiffness of knees, until her death was caused through lukewarmness and coldness of heart, lack of spiritual food, coupled with lack of faith, shameless desertion by her friends, and non-support were contributing causes of her death. Only a few were present at her funeral, sobbing over memories of her past beauty and power. Carefully selected pallbearers were asked to bear the remains tenderly away, but they failed to appear. Her body rests in a beautiful cemetery of bygone memories and glories awaiting the summer from above. Convene a prayer meeting? No, don't be doing that, cries this modern age. That's old hat. That's for old people. We're looking for exciting alternatives. Many of today's churches have ended up trying to outdo faucets and giffords and zippos And it's not worship to God they're looking for or prayer times. They're saying, you know, worship is about people. It's about exciting people. It's about stirring people. It's about, in other words, entertainment, getting people within the four walls and keeping them. And you know what's happened? We have lost sight of God. The church in Corinth was not shy about trying things like this. 
And in 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25, we find they have carved out quite a dubious reputation because they have meddled in the worship of God. Prayer and Bible study, that's a bit too mundane. Let's ramp it up. Do other things. Put our emphases in other places. Sign gifts and all of that. Let those be the key things. And Paul reminds them, when an unbeliever walks into your church, he's telling them this in Corinth, and sees your way of witnessing God, your behavior shouldn't allow that visitor to conclude, you know what, they're mad in there. Rather, you'll be judged of all. And that person coming in hears Paul's words so falling down on his face. He will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. The conclusion ought to be, surely God is in this place. How essential it is to maintain our prayer meetings. In a day when the prayer meeting has been jettisoned from the weekly program, and even been questioned as to, well, does it have any place in Scripture at all? Does it? There are many references, going back into the Old Testament, never mind the New, of a figurehead leading the nation or the congregation in prayer. We have many examples. Samuel is one of them in 1 Samuel 7 and 5. Solomon another, 1 Kings 8 and 22. We have Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3 through 13. We have Ezra calling on the nation to pray in Ezra 9 and 5. And of course, our Lord instructed his disciples in the necessity and nature of true prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 15. Nowhere does the value of collective prayer meetings more clearly emerge, though, than when you flick over into the, the book of Acts and start to read about the early church. And there, the prayer life of the New Testament church, it gives a pattern from which we in these modern days can and should learn. So we have the essentiality of this house of prayer. We have, secondly, the effects from the house of prayer, the effects from the house of prayer, and we're into the book of Acts here. Why did they have a prayer meeting? Why did they join together for prayer in that prayer meeting setting there? Well, for various reasons. One was encouragement. Acts 1, the verse 12 to 26. Our Lord has ascended into heaven, and the people in the church are terrified as to what is going to happen. They're at sixes and sevens. They are. They're conscious with his going of the removal of a big wall of protection from them. And so in the desolation of their spirits, they come to pray. Nothing emboldened them. Nothing lifted their spirits. Nothing strengthened them to face the trials that were innumerable that were coming their way, like drawing near to the Lord in united prayer. That prayer meeting was vital for the early church, and every church would do well to learn the value of prayer during its darkest hours, to join with fellow believers who have come the path of trial like us, who pour out sighs before the throne of grace like ours, who will help us in the presentation of our requests, who will, in other words, as we listen to them, teach us how to pray. 
I hear people from various denominations today, and they start to pray, and I think, you haven't grown up in a place where prayer is really practiced, where prayer is a powerful reality. You will learn that if you attend the church prayer meeting. The first Christian prayer meeting here in Acts chapter 1, it teaches us. What does it do? It brings comfort to discouraged people. Not only that, but it brings enablement as well. Going into the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, we have eloquent testimony born here to the fact that God's power is brought to the prayer meeting. Pentecost, the first Christian revival, followed ten days of intense prayer that was characterized by wholehearted unity. We read the believers were all with one accord in one place, and they were pushing up their petitions to heaven. They were bombarding the throne, and then we're told they were clothed with the power that our Lord had promised. Back in Acts 24, 49, in Acts 1 and 8, and those regular fishermen became extraordinary heralds of incredible truth that philosophers and kings had no idea about because they'd known power through the prayer meeting. Prayer always occupies a primary place if God's work is going forward, especially in the quest for revival. Jonathan Edwards was speaking on Ezekiel 36 and verse 37, and he emphasized, you know what? When God is going to do something tremendous for the church, what will he do? It will be preceded by the earnest prayers of God's people. It doesn't come any other way. I will yet, Ezekiel says, for this, be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. That message is reinforced in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, where God is working in His church. And the first thing He does is pour out the Spirit of grace and supplications in a remarkable way, and then power follows. And no matter what book on church history you read, you'll find this is always the pattern. Before the Second Great Awakening in 1858, Jeremiah Lamphere called a prayer meeting in downtown New York, invited businessmen within six months. 10,000 businessmen were praying for revival there. Within two years, approximately two million people were added to the church. Same pattern was followed here. In Ulster, in the 1859 revival here, James McQuilkin, a few others met in a schoolhouse, Kells and Connor, every Friday evening for prayer and Bible study. They kept themselves warm by gathering armfuls of peat and putting it into the fire. And while the peat warmed their bodies, the Holy Spirit kindled a fire within their souls. By the end of 1858, the number in the prayer meeting growing from a few to 50. They kept interceding before God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their prayers were tremendously answered in 1859 when an estimated 100,000 plus people were added to the churches in Ulster. And if you ask me, 
What is the great need of the church today? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And if I am going to receive it, where will I find it? I need to get to the place of prayer. It's in that place where the saints agree as touching anything that they shall ask, Matthew 18 and 19, that the blessings of heaven are going to be found. And so the benefits here from the prayer meeting, encouragement and enablement and also emancipation moving forward into the book of Acts chapter 4 and chapter 12 as well. We have two incidents there recorded where the people of God gather together and collect a prayer and they were days of persecution in the first, in Acts 4. That Christian community raised its voice in supplication when they had heard the report Peter and John are being persecuted by the Jewish authorities. And it was a prayer, it's actually a wonder, a colossal prayer that we have in Acts 4 that focuses entirely upon God. And as the consequence of this great prayer session, the place where they were assembled was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They spoke the word with great boldness. Many souls were converted to Christ. On the second occasion, Acts 12. Peter's in prison. No prospect of getting out. Security guarded. What we're told in Acts 12 and 5, prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And those supplications opened prison doors. Miraculous deliverance for Peter was given. The lesson is plain. The people of God have a warrant to assemble together, to plead together for themselves and for others. And times of persecution compel the church to unite in prayer, and great blessings will result. Another impact is evangelism. In Acts 13, 1 to 3, in Acts 16, 12 to 15, prayer meetings, you will know, approved pivotal to missionary success over the centuries. Andrew Fuller's prayer meeting, I would love to do a series on William Carey, and maybe sometime in the prayer meeting we will. But it was Andrew Fuller's prayer meeting that became the instrument in propelling William Carey to India. In Acts 13, the verse 1 to 3, we have details there as to, as a result of a prayer meeting, that was the platform again. The Holy Spirit directed that Barnabas and Saul should be appointed as missionaries and sent out on what became the first great missionary journey. The first recorded Christian service held on the continent of Europe was a prayer meeting. In Acts 16, Verse 12 to 15, we have the detail. Paul attended a riverside prayer meeting in Philippi. And it was at this prayer meeting that Lydia's heart was opened to receive the truth. And just as that prayer meeting gave the gospel its first foothold in Europe, so it has sustained many a missionary enterprise across the globe in the centuries that have followed. It's why we pray for our missionaries. The essentiality of the house of prayer. The effects from the house of prayer. And as I pass to the next point, the final one, let me just throw this out as a question. 
How would you feel if you're a missionary sent out by the church, working in Africa, working in India, working in the Philippines, working right across the globe, and then you heard the church that has sent me out has canceled its prayer meetings. No longer has a prayer meeting. Kerry, back in the day, went out telling Andrew Fuller and those in their prayer meeting, hold the ropes in prayer while I go down. But have they cut the rope and stopped the praying? It's a disaster. What a dereliction of duty. The enthusiasm for the house prayer is the final thing. How was our Lord's actions here in purging the temple? How was that interpreted by the disciples? What did they read into what they saw that day? Well, again, if you look closely at John 2, verse 13 to 17, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered. Here's their reaction. His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Know what the disciples realized? What we are seeing in front of our eyes is actually the fulfillment of Scripture here. Back in Psalm 69, in verse 9, we read, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach me are fallen upon me. And those disciples were saying, What we are seeing with our eyes today in this temple recorded in John 2 is the fulfillment of what is written in Psalm 69, in verse 9. By the way, this Psalm 69 is one of six psalms that are often referred to in the New Testament. And like the other five, they are a prophecy, a picture. They are showcasing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and He's fulfilling these words in His own life and in His work. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John, in John 15, 25, our Lord will cite the psalm referring to himself. Psalm 64, Psalm 69 in verse 4, but this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Again, in the same gospel, John chapter 19, we're at Calvary now, verse 28 and 29, but what is our Lord doing? He is quoting Psalm 69 again, verse 21 this time. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so David is contending here in Psalm 69 that he was suffering reproach for his loyalty and zeal for the house of God. And what happened to David? Certainly happened to the Messiah, great David's, King David's greater son. So we have assurance. We have also a note of agony here. The psalm, Psalm 69, it prophesies the Messiah's suffering and death. And here is our Lord. 
And all the sacrifices are being brought in and they're being offered. And with the sheep bleating and with the cattle lowing, with all those doves cooing and all the rest of it, they're going to the sacrifice. And it reminded our Lord, would it not? I am the ultimate sacrifice. And I soon will be offered on the altar of Calvary. And so there was a picture of his agony, his sufferings, his death. And he refers to that in John 2, verse 18 to 22. And he says, this temple will be destroyed. And they're saying, what? How could it be? I mean, you're going to dismantle what took over 40 years to build. You're going to do it in three days and up it goes again. But he wasn't talking about the fabric of the temple. He was talking about himself, his body, his sacrifice outside Jerusalem's wall. Agony. And those disciples saw a picture here of ardor. The Greek word zeal comes from the verb to boil. Tolridge, English poet, put it a boiling pot is the visual image of zeal. And our Lord's zeal was right up at boiling point. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. How do I go to the prayer meeting? Do I go thinking, wonderful, prayer meeting night. Can't wait to go. Need to offer prayer to God. Or, oh, it's Wednesday night again. I suppose I'll have to go. Yeah, get the suit on, get the clothes on, get into the car. And we turn up. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Not zeal going in the, right, in the wrong direction, but in the right direction. When it goes in the wrong direction, you've got the like of fascism and communism and all of those kind of misplaced zeals coming through. In Romans 10 and 2, Paul talks about a zeal, but not according to knowledge. But here's a zeal that is very much in knowledge. If you're looking for a zeal and no knowledge in it in a church context, then take all those... They're laughing like hyenas in the church building and they're calling it a movement of God's Spirit. They're dropping down onto the floor and they're knocking people on the forehead and they're called slain in the Spirit and all of that nonsense. They have done great damage to the church of Jesus Christ. That turns people off in their droves because they see through it as a nonsense it is. We had enthusiasts, that's what he called them in Luther's day, and they were getting in the way of the progress of the Protestant Reformation. And they were taking people up this blind alley, and Luther preached against them again and again. But that's not the zeal of the Lord. Nothing wicked about it, nothing off track about it. It was as holy as His love and His gentleness and grace are holy. In fact, His zeal was love in action. Luther once said, zeal is love made angry, and the heart of Christ is boiling here for the house of God. He loves that house, loved its worship, loved its sacrifice, loved its prayer, and all of that is true because he loves his Father in heaven with a perfect passion of love, and he loved to worship him, and he loved to see others worship him as well, and he loved men and women outside, and that holy zeal would eat him up for three years plus before it took him to the cross. That 
boiling passion for God's will, for God's name, for God's honor, for God's glory. That boiling passion for your soul and mine, your salvation and mine. And it's finally brought him to the cross. And in the eyes of sinners, it has destroyed him. But thank God, that temple was raised up again on the third day. His zeal, his zeal is a picture of what yours and mine should be. Maybe not abandon the prayer meeting in our day. Maybe rather come before God and say, Lord, stoke up the fire of my desire. Give me an unquenchable passion for it. As John Newton encouraged, numbers before have tried and find the promise true. Nor has one been denied, then why should I or you? Let us by faith their footsteps trace and hasten to the throne of grace.